Hi everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, where we chat about the space sector through entertainment, education, advice and insight. Today we have Karen Marcias speaking about Pride in the space sector in celebration of Pride Month. For a little background on the history of Pride Month, the Stonewall riots in June 1969 catalyzed the LGBTQ movement of Pride to a new level. The media coverage showcased the discrimination and hardships that LGBTQ members face and In 1970, the first Pride March was held on the one-year anniversary of the uprising, where the phrase Pride was coined. June thus became the month to commemorate Stonewall, and this is why we are celebrating Pride in today's episode. At UK Seds, we stand with everyone in the LGBTQ plus communities, not just during this Pride Month, but every day. We're currently in the process of creating a diversity and inclusion handbook for all our branches. And when it is safe to do so, we'll be running a second diversity in space careers conference where we celebrate and discuss all forms of diversity within the space sector. Everyone is welcome and we hope to see you there when it happens. Time is X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, Karen, welcome to Preparing for Launch. Thank you so much for being here. Do you just want to give a little introduction on yourself? Yeah, well, my name is Karen Macias Cardenas. I am a physicist from Mexico, and I'm 23 years old, and I'm very glad to be in this podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, anything that you want to ask, just tell me. Um, yeah, so we'll start off with some space questions first. How did you get interested in space? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for space, it was more physics, what attracted me first. Yeah. Uh, when I was in secondary of secondary school, I was supposed to have like my first physics class, uh, but my teacher at the time had forgotten her keys inside her house, so she tried to you know climb the window to get keys and broke her leg, which is kind of tragic. And then I didn't have a physics teacher for the rest of uh, around two or three months, and you know as a sore nerd I am, I decided to just read the physics textbook on my own. Uh, but I couldn't even understand the first chapter. <laughs> yeah. It was just like unit conversions and vectors, stuff like that. Uh, but I was just so amused by the mathematics and the physics there, even though I couldn't understand it because I felt challenged by the physics. And that led me to read in my first ever science book, which was The Grand Design by Stephen Hawking. And I completely fell in love with physics and the universe throughout that book. And I guess there's this history. I mean, it was like my first science book that I read and just trying to understand physics by my own and failing miserably. <laughs> that yeah. led me to being very, very amused by it. I was awful at physics at first. Literally, I was awful at it. Like, <laughs> I remember I joined, um, so everyone in the UK knows, so year 10 is freshman year. And I moved to the UK, never done physics before, and everyone had done it for years, and I was like, what is this? So oh, sure. I, I think one of the reasons why I like, appreciate physics so much is because I was so bad at the beginning, so I understand. So can you talk about your physics undergraduate experience? Yeah, yeah. so as I said, I'm from Mexico, so I did my undergrad in the Autonomous University of Baja California here in Mexico, 
and I just finished a couple of weeks ago, so yay. <laughs> that is on. Congrats. Um, thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure how different it is from other countries, but here it's like a very general degree. So we don't have like majors and minors like other countries do. So you just take both theoretical and experimental physics labs. And I think that helps to really grasp physics from different angles and help you decide what you want to do in grad school if that's the road you want to take. Uh, it took me five years to finish my undergrad. The usual time frame is around four years, uh, but nobody really finishes <laughs> in that time frame, so it's fine. Uh, last year I was like severely burned out uh, because I was so tired of homework and classes and homework and then more classes. So I decided to take like a semester off to do an internship in a cosmology group in Guanajuato. And it was something that I really needed to do because I was, as I said, really tired of classes. And I wanted to know how it will feel to just do research for a while uh, in order to decide if I wanted to stay in academia or not. So that's, that's what I take. Mm -hmm. How do you decide to focus on particle and high energy astrophysics? Yes, so last year I won a prize that is called uh, the John M. Bacall Physics Award. And this is a prize that is sponsored by Neto Bacall of Princeton and Enrico Ramirez Ruiz of UCSC. And Enrico is a Mexican and is the one that came up with the award and is given to top Mexican physics students from public institutions to do a summer research internship at the Dark Cosmology Center in Copenhagen. So when I was in Guanajuato, I already knew that I was going to Denmark for the summer. Uh, so the research I was doing there in Guanajuato was about the scalar fields models of dark energy. And these models come from particle physics theories. And I thought that intersection between particle physics and cosmology was so interesting that when Enrico contacted me and asked me what I wanted to do during the summer, I told him that I wanted to try something in that area. And that's how I ended up working with Dr. Irene Tambora, who is from the Astronaut Group at the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. And the research that I do now is extragalactic uh, high energy neutrinos, which is part of particle astrophysics. So that's, yeah, that's how I ended up in that area. Oh, sweet. So do you think it was nice doing practical work in between your years of degree to kind of like get some real, like real experience outside of the classroom? Yeah, I think that's so, so important because when you're in school, it's very, very similar to what you do in high school and what you have been doing before, right? It's just classes and then you do the homework and then you have a lab and you write a report. Uh, but how is it to actually work in the field? What is it to be, to do research or maybe do an internship at a company and see how the industry works? It's very different. So I think it will be uh, really good if students will consider doing some sort of research internship when they are in undergrad. So they know for sure if they want to do science as a living. Can you talk about your plans for next year post-grad? Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. It's nice. <laughs> uh, I, I'm doing a master's in Queen's University in Canada. And I mean, I still don't know if I will start this fall or in the winter time in 2021, because you know, we're in the COVID-19 crisis. And we don't know how it's going to play with the planes and all that. So, yeah, I'm going to see how it happens. Uh, but I'm going to do it in the high energy astrophysics uh, theory group at Queens. And if everything works out, I'm going to do my master's. And yeah, let's see if I stay there for my PhD or not. That I don't know about that. 
<laughs> Let's do That's so exciting. Where do you see yourself in like five years? Yeah, well, I mean, if everything keeps working out, <laughs> that's because we're yeah. working out right now. Uh, hopefully during my last year or two years of PhD, because I do want to stay in the academic road. So I want to do my yeah. master's, my PhD, my postdoc, and then, you know, find somewhere where they need a professor in physics <laughs> and be able to have my, yeah, my own lab, my own research group. Uh, so yeah, hopefully doing that and hopefully still doing part of science communication mm -hmm. is what it would really like for me in the next five years. What draws you to academia and outreach? Yeah, so that's a really good question because, um, you know, when I was a student in secondary school and high school, uh, my teachers there really pushed me to do like, there's like the science, Olympics kind of, <laughs> you know, worldwide. There's like the physics Olympiad and there's the chemistry one. And I did the national ones in physics and chemistry. And I really like the, you know, that just solving problems. And I thought, well, how can I solve problems and earn money? <laughs> and that's, you know, doing research yeah. as a physicist or astrophysicist. So that's why I like academia that much. And I think that when you really like something, you want to share it with everyone. So I think science communication, it's exactly what it does, is just sharing your love for physics and astrophysics. And I want other people to get excited about it, just as, as excited as I am. I love that. I love your Twitter account. You can talk about Twitter a bit, like you're very active on that. Yes. So, oh, Twitter is amazing. And I have so much things to say about Twitter. It feels like I'm a spokesperson for Twitter, and I'm not, but I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so <clears throat> Twitter, I joined like maybe three or four years ago, and at the time I was just looking for some search, some sort of like connection with other people who talked like me uh, mm -hmm. in the world, and I found like this amazing community of uh, scientists and academics on Twitter from all over the world, and we can just chat <laughs> about everything and see how things are working out maybe in the UK how we're working out in the states and how we're working out in South America and it doesn't matter where you're from uh, things are different but you can still you know reach and connect with people from all over the world I think that's amazing and that's something super important in science because science is international yeah so you want to create connections that work at that level so just going right in there what does pride mean to you that is such a hard question. It's a big one. <laughs> I mean, I think that, it, yeah, the definition of pride, I think is very personal. Uh, to me, pride is sort of about sense of community. Yeah. You know, that sense of belonging somewhere where there are people like you. It's like having this big support group, this big family that is there for you to back you up when people want to be hateful. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that the sense of community that I actually joined Twitter, right? So I found all these LGBT scientists on Twitter and I thought, hey, I'm not the only one here. That's fantastic. And I, yeah, they back me up when, when I need some backup. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel right about the whole, everyone has their own definition of it. And it's kind of, it's very personal to you. It's not just a generic like term. Like pride is, is very sure. personal. I like that. What actions starting in early education can LGBTQ representation be increased in the space sector? 
Yeah, this is also, I think, this is highly context dependent. So if you ask me about Mexico, then I will first tell you that there's barely any education <laughs> regarding both the space factor or the LGBTQ community. And that has to do with its history, right? Uh, we're still a country that is very conservative. Uh, so what around that education from an early age is extremely important. I think astrophysics is still an area where very privileged people can thrive easily, but it presents systematic barriers to underprivileged ones, such as Black folks, Indigenous people, and of course, the LGBT community. And what we have been doing up to now is trying to patch up together a system that started broken and has remained broken. So everything I tell you may only be like a temporary fix. If we want long lasting effects, we need to reform institutions. And we need to get rid of exclusionary ideas and remind ourselves that scientists are first and foremost human. And the LGBT community is filled with people who demand human rights to give you given the same opportunities that cisgender or maybe heterosexual white men were given from the very start. Yeah. And scientific institutions need to acknowledge that. That's the first step. And most of them don't even do that right or do it at all. So I would like to see some real acknowledgement first. And um, when it comes to representation itself, then I would like for the school system to include LGBTQ history. And that also includes queer scientists and their contributions to the space sector. Because I would like for queer kids to have someone to look up to in the STEM areas. I think that's the most important part of that. Speaking of that word mentor and someone to look up to, can you talk about how mentors and people to look up to if you are a member of the LGBT community can be helpful for those members? Yeah, I think having mentors that maybe look like you or have gone through the same things that you have, it's extremely important uh, because you want to connect with people yeah. who feel the same way that you feel. And when there's nobody up there to communicate to, then maybe you have to be the first one to do that. And that's very scary. To be the first one to do something is to have no guidance, <laughs> nowhere to look up to. Uh, so I think representation is extremely important because it doesn't mean that there's no one up there that has done and felt the things that you had. It's just that maybe they are poorly represented either in academia or media or in the space industry. So giving them the space to shine is really important uh, for everyone, but especially for those in the LGBT community that want to thrive for, you know, the just respect <laughs> overall yeah. from both academia and the sector. What, this is a big question, but what challenges have you faced as a Mexican woman and also member of the LGBT community in the space industry? Yeah, so a challenge. I think the biggest challenge about being in the LGBT community is, and in the space sector is just being yourself uh, because most of the time, uh, you know, where you're talking about your pride as a queer person, you come up with this maybe like this very bright, colorful person. And sometimes that is associated with something that is not very professional. To other academics and that is not true i think that's bs <laughs> yeah i mean you can be queer and you can be all yeah you can be queer and you can be all happy and you can wear your colors and still be professional but sometimes you're scared that people will see you as this queer scientist before a scientist 
and it's cool that we have representation and visibility. I want to be that for someone else, but I don't want other academics to just see me as this token person they can put on pamphlets or, you know, use me as this diversity person <laughs> who is like queer and it's just there to make the department look good or whatever. I want them to really see my work and to really respect me for who I am. 100%. It's really amazing though. I really respect the hurdles that you've had to overcome to go into the space sector and just the overall STEM community. Respect to that. I want to say that's really impressive. I respect all my colleagues that are from underrepresented group. I really do. It's really hard to be, yeah. uh, you know, in a department that is dominated by usually just white folks, <laughs> you know, Definitely. or white heterosexual cisgender people. Mm -hmm. and and you're scared to act a certain way that compromises who you are. So being authentic is hard in those situations. Are there specific ways that companies or organizations can be more inclusive to LGBTQ rights or like specific actions they can mm -hmm. take to make youth and others feel more inclusive? Yeah, well, first of all, I will tell them to hire a professional to assess how the climate is in said company or organization yeah. for their LGBTQ employees. In Mexico, at least, there's one company I know of, uh, which is called Pride Connection, and it does exactly that. It creates connections between uh, LGBT organizations and employees and between the other companies to create this really safe environment, you know, for them to thrive. Uh, because at the end of the day, we just want to feel safe and respected in the workplace. And that can be made through the smallest of actions, you know, it can be like celebrating Pride Month, putting a tiny flag on your desk. But that also needs to be backed up by the company, right? Yeah. The company investing in creating detailed guidelines in what to do in the case of discrimination in the workplace. Uh, but then again, that is only possible if the law of said country specifically states that being discriminated by your sexual or gender identity is a crime. And therefore, a good enough motive for organizations to fire those people who are discriminating. And companies need to step forward and advocate for their queer employees. Uh, because the minute a problem comes up and it's just, you know, swept under the rug instead of making a public statement about it, then you have broken that trust between company and employee. And that is a very hard situation to fix. It's about like specific actions. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what specific actions can take. I think they they have to create legislations and rules, guidelines in their, uh, you know, in the industry for them to be able to see when people are being discriminated by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, because, I mean, if they don't know what discrimination looks like, they cannot do anything about it. Are there certain organizations or charities that are supportive of the LGBTQ STEM students? Yeah, I mean, I can think of many. I can think of Pride in STEM, about all STEM, 500 queer scientists. Uh, I will encourage everyone to look for the LGBT STEM Day webpage because all the collaborators are there. In Mexico, there is one that's called Debu but I feel like its reach isn't large enough yet. 
So I'll be collaborating with them soon and hopefully something good comes out of it. Uh, the thing is that most LGBTQ organizations in STEM are from either the US or European countries. Mm -hmm. And I would really like for an organization from a developing country to be as global as they are. You know, and I would like to help if I can. I guess we will see how that works out. What advice would you give to students um, that are maybe struggling with coming out in the space sector or to their peers or people they work with? Um, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, I mean, definitely it's a struggle to be openly who you are, either in your workplace or in your university, especially if there aren't other people there who look like you or who are part of the community. So I will tell them to, first, if they aren't out yet, that is okay. It's okay to not come out if you are not in a place where you don't feel it's safe to come out. So if you want to, you can do what you, you know, you can do what I did, <laughs> which was going and looking for communities online. There's a lot of people online that really want to help and there are a lot of really nice communities where you can meet people who are like you and they will help you really come out of your shell, I think. And if you are ready, then you can start making changes where you are if you want to do that. So for example, in my university uh, last year when it was the LGBT STEM day, I proposed to do, you know, the justice like posters and infographics about queer people in STEM. So we did that and we posted on social media and we, and we put the posters in the university. And then we had some talks about the LGBT community in the sciences and those were a first in my university and I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for the community online that first, you know, gave me the confidence yeah. to come out and gave me the confidence to be who, who I am. So I will tell them to uh, please be safe first and then when you feel like you want to be you and want to be out in the world, then look for people in your local uh, environment that can help you. Maybe there aren't, you just don't know because, <laughs> I mean, you weren't ready just to look for them. Yeah, I think it's again the importance of like space. Okay, I can speak. I think it's again the importance of having safe spaces and yeah. how, how long that goes to help people. Just having, um, I don't know, like I know at university when they have like visit LGBTQ space, safe space, just on an RA's door or a club if they have saying, okay, we are a safe space. Just like having those, um, that action is just so meaningful for people. Yeah, very small, tiny things can be very meaningful. That's to say, you know, when you are in the workplace having like the pride flag on your desk or having that, that one professor will not judge you for having problems. Someone you can confide in, in your university, I think that's very important. I think it's very important for professors to be allies too. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's a good point about professors being allies because they're teaching you, they're shaping your mind, they are they're there to support yeah. you. At the National Student Space Conference, for you who says everybody had pronoun badges on and it just created this really open and safe environment for everybody because everyone was able to self-identify how they wanted to identify um, their pronouns. And yeah. it just, it created a very supportive atmosphere. And like this is a safe space. And however you want to identify here in this room is how you want to identify, not 
there's no language barrier. There's no, and I think I was really proud to be from an organization that supported that and have had that, just the little initiatives that they've made to make it really supportive. Yeah, I think that should be the standard. The thing is that we're looking at it as if it was this really revolutionary thing, and it shouldn't. It should be just the, the very minimum that, that you know, agencies and institutions have to do for their students. Yeah, it should be just normal. I think this, you're right. It shouldn't be like a, oh, wow, like pronouns or something. That's great. It should be like the normal. It should just be like. Yeah, it should be normal. It's like, I mean, I understand that it's not. What can the STEM and space sector do to bring the gaps between science and politics and LGBTQ rights? Right. So here's what I think. I think there are people who refuse to treat science as a political thing, but science is political. It has always been from the simple fact that what makes science are the scientists and we are political beings. And my answer comes from what I have said before that STEM areas need to start talking about the foundations of its institutions and start making reparations to the LGBT community. And they shouldn't expect the queer people in their institutions to fix it for them, because that is free labor. <laughs> if you want LGBTQ students to reform your whole university, then at least, you know, pay them for it, uh, yeah. make reparations for them. Do you have any advice for young LGBTQ students or researching working somewhere where no one is openly part of the community? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was pretty much like that in my previous institution yeah. because, well, first, you know, as I say, I wasn't even out. Uh, and I couldn't find or connect with people like me that easily. But then I encountered the wonderful world of Twitter and I found out yeah. there's this huge community of queer academics, which to me was kind of a shock. So I recommend to those who don't have other LGBTQ people at their school or workplace to reach out online and it can be a really powerful tool. And it's what made me come out and start organizing LGBTQ seminars in the science department, which led me to actually meet queer people in person, uh, even if they weren't all from my department, but it did create a sense of support network. And I will advise to look for that either online or in another place in your city. Uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to find that there's always queer people as small <laughs> as it is the place you live. Can you talk more about the seminars that you had? Yeah, sure. So, uh, as I said, it, uh, the university had never had, and especially the science department, more like the science department, hadn't had any contact with more of the social sciences or, mm -hmm. you know, the LGBTQ community. So one of the professors there, and her name is Dr. Priscilla Iglesias, she is the one who, you know, called me and told me, hey, I want to do this kind of seminars and I know you're part of the LGBT community. So, you know, I need your advice on how to proceed or if you know people outside uh, that are able to give a talk about the LGBT community in Ensenada, which is my hometown. And I said, sure. So I, you know, I moved from my campus to another campus from my university that, that that's where the social sciences are and started looking uh, for the coordinator or the LGBT community in Ensenada. So I asked him if he could give uh, some talks and he said yes, very generously. And that's how it went. It was just general talks about how the community is in Ensenada 
and how our rights are in the country and in the state. And, you know, because those are things that a lot of people don't know. Just what are what is the situation of LGBTQ people where you live? And, you know, if you want to be an ally or if you really want to support the community, then you need to know those things. Speaking of allies, what steps can allies take to be supportive of their peers and make them feel welcome, supported, and comfortable in a workplace or an academic place? Sure. So I think allies are one of the most important things uh, because at the end of the day, they, they are the ones that have the privilege, right? The ones that can use that privilege as a tool. So the first thing that I will tell them is to educate themselves, you know, just see how things are, where you work, what is the, what do the LGBT people there feel like, and what is the state of LGBTQ community in your city? And once you educate yourself, then listen, actually listen to the people who are part of the community there and ask them what are their troubles, what can you change? And most importantly, when trouble comes, which probably will <laughs> in your workplace or where you work uh, or where you uh, study, then really be there for them because we don't want performative allyship. We want real allyship. And that means, uh, you know, allies is sticking out for us when we need them. For those who don't know, what is performative allyship? Yeah, so that's a really good question. <laughs> so there's, uh, you know, there's always going to be people who want to look good, either yeah. look good to their bosses or look good to their PIs in the department, and they will use uh, LGBT people or just in general people in minorities uh, to make them look good. So they yeah. will stay in their social media that you know human rights and LGBT rights or human rights uh, but when it comes to the actual trouble in the workplace then you know they they say goodbye and don't really stick for the people there so it's not about just what you pretend on either social media or before your boss when you're talking in a conference it's about the tiny but very important actions that you take be, uh, that you do behind closed doors uh, for you know your peers it's kind of like the phrase all talk no action kind of so you can't just say like yeah. oh, i'm supportive but not actually be supportive when yeah. times get difficult or when you know you just you have to actually be supportive yeah, you can't just exactly say you are that. i mean those people just want to get something out of it right so something that benefits them either they want to have a better position at their job or either, you know, something will benefit them, but they don't care if it will benefit the actual minority group, such as the LGBT community. So that's what I meant with performative allyship. What has it been like working towards inspiring the next generation of underrepresented scientists? I think this, this one is also a heavy question. I mean, I just do what I can, uh, which has been visible as a queer astrophysicist. And hopefully that helps someone realize they can do it too. You know, yeah. they can be queer and be about a scientist all at the same time. And I'm really grateful 
to have some sort of platform as small as it is, uh, maybe right now, but to be able to be who I am on the platform. And when people talk to me, uh, you know, after conference or people DM me on Twitter, telling me how excited they are to meet someone like me, because apparently a queer Mexican scientist with ADHD is not that common to find. And, and not because we don't exist, but because we're just poorly represented. So we have to create our own spaces in social media. And that really makes my heart so with Joey. And to be able to help someone be more comfortable with who they are. We spoke earlier about how allies can be more supportive in a workplace or an education place. But for any of our listeners who want to be better LGBTQ ally in mm -hmm. overall, not in a specific community, but just sure. outside of a community. Um, so before they go into that community, so to educate themselves, what resources can they use to educate themselves and what actions can they take? Yeah. So honestly, there are tons of resources on the internet. A good place to start is maybe in the LGBTQ organizations and social media or websites. For example, in Mexico, there's JAG or someone that, uh, one organization that's called It Gets Better. And usually websites from the government also have information on the state of the LGBTQ community in your country. Uh, also get involved with local organizations if they exist in the place you live. Maybe they need hosting or organizing, you know, they need help hosting or organizing an event or even just helping them reach a wider audience. I think there are very, a lot of actions that you can take from the place you live. You don't have to like always reach, you know, to set a global scale and just start from the end. You can do tiny things in the place you live and really change lives of people. So get in contact with local organizations. Uh, they probably need help. <laughs> all, yeah. all organizations that are, you know, doing work because they want to, change something they always need help do you know of organizations that um we have to donate to or if non-financially other ways to support them so as i said i think um most organizations i know specifically in stem are as i said prime stem five project mm -hmm. scientists understand house of stem and in mexico there's jag it gets better and the which is written D-I-B-U, and they, they're always taking donations, you know, because they are non-profit organizations. So all the yeah. work that they do, there's people that do it because they want to do it and they want to see change in their community, uh, but they are really not getting something in reward. So helping them any way you can, and that includes donations, is a very good thing to do. We ask everyone this, this is kind of like the go-to question, but sure. what are you most excited for in the future of spaceflight? I mean, there are so many things. <laughs> <We're just laughs> I mean, since I'm an astrophysicist, I like- Yeah, or astronomy space, research, right? whatever it is. Oh, there, oh there's even more then. I mean, <laughs> like, so there's, there's a Euclid telescope from NASA. There's also the James Webb telescope. LISA, which is an interferometer, which is similar to LIGO and Virgo, uh, that are the ones that detected gravitational waves, but this is gonna be in space. So uh, something that can detect gravitational waves in space is called LISA. That's a very exciting project. There's of course, uh, Mars 2020. This year, uh, there was supposed to launch ExoMars from ESA 
uh, March 2020 from NASA. I really don't know what's going to happen because of COVID. I think there's still shuttle for this year, but you know, maybe stuff can change. Hopefully they will be launched this year. Of course, there's also the Artemis mission to the moon. Finally, some women scientists and engineers on the moon. Uh, I think that will be surely historic. That's what I'm most excited for. Anything the moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone says Mars. I love Mars. I was already good at Mars, but the moon is just my favorite. I can't get enough of that. That's just my favorite thing ever. Where do you see the future of Pride and STEM going? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. I mean, as I said, because I think future looks very different from where you're standing, you know? Because if you ask me, so for example, last year, I went to this workshop that was called the Astrophysics Theoretical School in Amsterdam. Mm. Wow. And the purpose of that school uh, was to bring together people from developing countries or from different minorities and, you know, give them the resources to, uh, you know, what's the state of astrophysics right now. And it was really cool because, I mean, there were people, you know, there was a lot of LGBT people there. There were people from Asia, from Africa, um, from South America. It's really the most diverse environment that I have been in. There were truly people from all over the world. And so I think that if you were to ask everyone who was there, was, you know, the future of Pride and STEM in the next, I don't know, two years, three years, four years, they will all tell you something different because what the future looks in Europe or in, U- in the US, which are developing countries, it's very different from the future from developing countries. Uh, here, I think we are not even in the state of, for example, most of European countries right now. So we need a lot of politics changes and a lot more of representation. Uh, I have been doing some work so I'm in this group that is called Jude Scientific Society, Sociedad Científica Juvenil in Spanish, and I have been with them for like six or seven years. And it's a nationwide effort to bring together uh, students from different areas that just like science and do science communication all over the country. So this, this month, which is, you know, Pride Month, we're doing a series of conferences online and stuff like that and you know in an effort to really represent LGBT scientists in Mexico I think it's the first time that an event like that is being held even if it's online I cannot think of a conference that has been done that includes LGBT scientists you know that only includes that so that's really exciting for me to be a part of uh, right now I understand that other European countries or uh, the, the United States, for example, they have OSTEM, which does, uh, I think every year they do like a conference that is just dedicated to LGBT scientists. And that doesn't exist here. So I, I would like to do those sort of stuff. And not only in Mexico, I mean in every developing country in the rest of South America and in Africa and places in Asia. So yeah, I think the future here looks very different. I think we need to catch up first. And then after we catch up, we can start thinking about what is needed. Was there a moment when you're doing all this STEM um, outreach that you're really excited for the future of the Pride community? It's like a really inspiring moment. Yeah, so actually 
I just did this online uh, like panel discussion about uh, gender and sexual orientation in the sciences like uh -huh. two days ago. Okay. And so, I'm yeah. Sorry, and I met uh, yeah. What did you talk about in the panel? Yeah, so in the panel we were uh, five persons from this society that I told you that I that I belong to. And there were people from, you know, who were physicists and nanoscientists and, you know, bioengineers, so from a lot of areas. And I realized that even in Mexico, the, the state of the LGBT community is very different from state to state. I mean, it's such a huge country that, you know, differences are bound to <laughs> exist. Yeah. And what communities... Uh, you know, there's also intersectionality. So there, there are people who are, are, you know, people of color and are LGBT, or there are people who are indigenous and are LGBT, and their needs are different from people like me who are just white and have that privilege and are LGBT. So they just really seeing people from all backgrounds and intersectionalities. Uh, wanting to do that change was very inspiring to me, just hearing their stories about what they have been through in their communities, and how they have been discriminated, and how they have to, you know, just fight to be taken into account in their own schools, really made me think of the privileges that I have had. Even though it's where I live isn't like utopia either, <laughs> but there's always going to be another place where, where things are harder than where, where I live. So it made me you know, hopeful that there are people everywhere fighting for uh, LGBT rights all, all across the country. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you. Thank you for the interview. It was really fun. Thank you so much for listening to today's Pride episode. Don't forget to check out our websites, spacecareers.uk and ukses.org for all the latest careers information and other news going on in the space world. Be sure to join me Thursday at 5 in two weeks' time for our next episode. Bye, guys. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.